Hi, listeners. It's Courtney. Eleanor and I have been completely swamped lately, so instead of a new Victorian Scribblers episode, today you get a supercut of our spinoff podcast, Lit Slashing. So strap in, get ready to listen to some horrible reviews that were written in the 19th century about some of your favorite classic authors. It's brutal, it's bad, it's backhanded, and you might want to build a time machine just to go back in time and fight some of these reviewers (laughs) by the end of it. And if you like what you hear, you can check out our show notes for a link that will let you subscribe to Lit Slashing directly, so it will show up every week in your podcatcher of choice. Thanks for listening. Emily Dickinson, Charlotte Bronte, Jane Austen. To us, they're the almost untouchable authors of classic literature. But to their contemporaries? Well, that's another matter altogether. This is Lit Slashing, a weekly podcast bringing you history's most notorious, bad, backhanded, and brutal reviews of literary classics. Eleanor Dunbill. And I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd. Together, we are exploring the world of Victorian and earlier literary reviews and um, bringing you the most horrifying of them <laughs> for your shot and fruit fueled listening. It's nice to hear bad reviews of people that you were taught in school and at university as being universally kind of beloved. Yeah. Let's, uh, Kick the myth of perfectionism, of perfectness, uh, to the curb. Yes. Yeah? Today, we're slashing William Wordsworth, or we're um, letting, hear, hearing about a slashing of... <laughs> we're replaying the slashing of William Wordsworth? Yeah. Who you might have heard about at some point. Um, William Wordsworth was born on April 7th, 1770, died on April 23rd of 1850. He was an English poet who, alongside his pal, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, kick-started the Romantic Age in English literature with the publication of Lyrical Ballads in 1798. He's famous for poems including Daffodils, whose opening, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud, you might also recognize because it's pretty ubiquitous in our culture. So let's dive in with a slashing review. Yeah, what are we slashing today? Which of Wordsworth's works? A review of The Excursion being a portion of The Recluse, a poem by William Wordsworth, published in the Edinburgh Review, November 1814. This will never do. It bears no doubt the stamp of the author's heart and fancy but unfortunately not half so visibly as that of his peculiar system. His former poems were intended to recommend that system and to bespeak favor for it by their individual merit, but this, we suspect, must be recommended by the system and can only expect to succeed where it has been previously established. It is longer, 
weaker, and tamer than any of Mr. Wordsworth's other productions, with less boldness of originality and less even of that extreme simplicity and lowliness of tone which wavered so prettily in the lyrical ballads between silliness and pathos. We have imitations of Cowper and even of Milton here, engrafted on the natural drawl of the Lakers, and all deluded into harmony by that profuse and irrepressible wordiness which deluges all the blank verse of this school of poetry and lubricates and weakens the whole structure of their style. Though it fairly fills 420 good quarto pages without note, vignette, or any sort of extraneous assistance, it is stated in the title, with something of an imprudent candor, to be but a portion of a larger work, and in the preface, where an attempt is rather unsuccessfully made to explain the whole design, it is still more rashly disclosed that it is but, quote, a part of the second part of a long and laborious work, end quote, which is to consist of three parts. What Mr. Wordsworth's ideas of length are, we have no means of accurately judging, but we cannot help suspecting that they are liberal to a degree that will alarm the weakness of most modern readers. <laughs> I got this isn't scholarly at all, but I did get distracted when they referred to people who live in the Lake Districts as Lakers because I was thinking about the Los Angeles Lakers, and I was like, how does Kobe Bryant feel about this? Who am I thinking of? He did play for the Lakers, but LeBron James! That's who I'm thinking of. Anyway, that's a complete aside. <laughs> 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 you needed to know <laughs> I mean I really think this this reviewer could have quit at the first sentence like this will never do and full stop that's it <laughs> I think a lot of especially undergraduates will probably relate to their main gripe seems to be it's too long mm -hmm. we don't want to read all of this which really reminded me of like I don't know. I think Wordsworth and Charles Darwin have a lot in common in terms of what they think of as short. <laughs> the like origin of the species was famously um, considered an abstract by Darwin at 400 pages, right? And so, like, <laughs> yeah, it's long, guys. It's long. <laughs> they just Wordsworth just has a lot of feelings. And Darwin has a lot of, has also feelings facts. about science. Or, yeah, facts is what they're called. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I guess, you know, you can't, you can't please everybody. It's, even if you're, like, trying to, the like, do theory and practice at the same time to found a new field of poetry, right? Even if you're one of the most iconic poets to ever live, who's worked every school child has to study at some point probably people are still going to be upset yep but i do think their main complaints being you know primarily around length is very timeless mm -hmm. yeah and well i mean it's just like this weird double standard of this is a really long review to say that the work is too long <laughs> yes when i'm trying to this is why sometimes my reviews are like 10 minutes long because it's so wordy just get to the point dudes mm -hmm. so my review of the reviewer is, and yours by the sounds of it, is the same as their review of Wordsworth. Yeah. So, yeah, this has been Lit Slashing, uh, where we get to explore hypocrisy in long form. <laughs> yes, please rate and subscribe and 
review if you're going to be kinder than these reviewers are to Wordsworth. The first kind of literary monolith that we're going to slash is known to listeners of Victorian Scribblers as the enemy of the pod. Yeah, so Edward Bulwer-Lytton, whose full name is Edward George Earl Lytton Bulwer-Lytton, first Baron Lytton, was born on the 25th of May, 1803, and died on January 18th, 1873. He was an English writer and politician, most famous for novels such as Pelham and The Last Days of Pompeii. Lytton also coined the phrases, the great and washed, suit of the almighty dollar, the pen is mightier than the sword, and dweller on the threshold, as well as the iconic opening phrase, it was a dark and stormy night. There are contests to kind of replicate the worst opening phrase, um, the Bulwer-Lytton contest, and there's also a version of it for children, which I won third place in as a young person. <laughs> Woo. So I had the I had the worst, the least worst <laughs> first opening phrase. Still finished on the podium. Yeah. <laughs> so let's listen to some reviews. So what I've got as a review of Edward Bulwer-Lytton is in fact not a review of Edward Bulwer-Lytton. This is a review of James Justinian Morier's Zorab the Hostage, and the review was published in the Quarterly Review for December 1832. However, the editor of the Quarterly Review had something of a professional feud with Edward Bulwer-Lytton and his magazine, New Monthly Magazine. And because of that, we find some references to Bulwer-Lytton's work in reviews of other works. These gentlemen, since they permit themselves such more than epic use of materials rejected by the drama, might be expected to abstain from those features of dramatic composition which are peculiarly and especially incompatible with the epic form. Yet here again, they are perpetually delinquents. They avail themselves in diffuse narrative at every turn of expedience which are only allowed in the drama, because of its exclusive characteristic, namely, as a species that brings personages and events directly before the spectator himself without the palpable intervention of any third party. But this absurdity reaches its climax in the autobiographical novel, the very essence of which is to present things as they occur to the writer. With these artists, nothing is more common than to have an autobiographical hero describing a scene with his own father or brother, known from the beginning, as it afterwards appears, by him to be such. And yet, leaving us in ignorance that the personage was his father or his brother, until the discovery of that fact to us comes to be a matter of convenience to him in the unravelling of his third volume. This is blinking all the peculiar difficulties of the form of composition, depriving it of all its counterbalancing peculiar advantages, and introducing into its main structure the very trickeries which it was expressly meant to avoid. We not long since, in reviewing certain romances by one of the authors of the never-to-be-forgotten Rejected Addresses, had occasion to speak at length of the ridiculous fashion in which he, as well as less gifted imitators of Sir Walter Scott, has permitted himself to make use in fictitious narratives of real historical personages and we may therefore pass lightly over the offences in this kind more recently perpetrated. We are not sure whether the taste of Mr Bulwer himself in this line is exhibited to higher advantage in his Paul Clifford, where he introduces a clumsy and witless caricature of King George IV and his ministers, under the guise and similitude of a troop of Hounslow highwaymen, the present Duke of Devonshire as Bachelor Bill, the landlord of a flash house in the minories, etc, etc. All this sort of travesty farce being inlaid into a fable of the days of King George I, or in another piece where side by side with a sentimental, uses an outdated term here, but I would say Romany person, deeply learned in the minor poets of the Elizabethan age, 
figures the late Mr. Henry Fauntleroy, seen over the debtor's door at Newgate and all the rest of him. Or in a third of the series, wherein the hero and impudent wonder of 19 is gravely represented as living on the footing of intimate friendship and confidential intercourse with Bolingbroke, Pope, Swift, the Regent Orleans, Count Anthony Hamilton, Admiral Apraxin, the Tsar Peter I, and his consort, to say nothing of occasional colloquies between the said beardless coxcomb and Collie Kibber, Matthew Pryor, Mr. Addison, Richard Cromwell, ex-protector of England, Sir Richard Steele, the Abbe du Chalot, the Duke de Saint-Simon, Fleury, Dubois, Massillon, Danjot, Fantinelle, Madame de Maintenon, Louis XIV, and Monsieur de Voltaire, etc., etc. We had really thought that after Mr. Smith's episode of John Milton smoking tobacco and dictating Paradise Lost in a suburban parlour, into which a hero, we forget his name, happened to stumble when the bailiffs were in chase of him, there would have been an end of this horrible nonsense, but no. Mr. Bulwer has worked the same vein of absurdity with a still more daring hand. The author of Devereux makes the attempt, however unsuccessfully, to put characteristic words into the mouths of the great shades whom he evokes. That's a that's a quite a choice. Just be like, hey, um, <laughs> this totally unrelated review. Let's uh, slash my nemesis, Bulwer Lytton. <laughs> yeah, and it's like that's a good like four or five pages. They reference a few other, like, authors in there, but primarily it's all about Bulwer Lytton and about how much they hate him. And they're like, he tries to be Sir Walter Scott, he isn't Sir Walter Scott. They name drop all of the historical characters. <laughs> and I was like, he's, he can't write these correctly. That's fun. I just feel really sorry for Moriere. The review does get back to him, but it's about, it's supposed to be about him and they just keep going on about Bulwer Lytton. <laughs> It's like the editor wants this very specific review. <laughs> How can we swerve to Bulwer-Lytton? Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> yeah. In both papers, you find, like, going back and forth, they're just com- continuously getting their jabs in against each other. Mm. Like both Bulwer-Lytton and I can't remember who was the editor of the quarterly at this time. But they're just, yeah, continuously being like, this guy's trash. No, he is. Um, mainly for political reasons. Sure. Yeah. I think um Bulwer Lytton being compared to other famous authors is maybe a point of uh, similarity between reviews. Maybe that's a good place to dive in mm-hmm. with the one that I found. A review of The Lady of Lyon, a play by E. L. Bulwer, published in the Athenaeum in 1838. In our notice of the theatres, we said almost all that was needful about The Lady of Lyon, praising it as a very effective and attractive melodrama, refusing it any higher title. We should have credited the author to some amount of dramatic talent undisplayed had he put forth just these claims for his piece, and no more. But when we find his preface talk of such a trifle as meriting aught beyond the public's indulgent acceptance and his own disdain, it obliges us to conclude that his standard of stage composition is low indeed, and that little improvement can ever be expected either from his sublimity of taste or his self-dissatisfaction. What dwarf model of the dramatic muse has our author before his eyes when he chuckles over a vaudeville play like this and brings it as triumphant proof of his successful wrestle on the Shakespearean arena? Forsooth, 
It demonstrates the writer's power to, quote, attain the art of dramatic construction and theatrical effect, end quote. Respecting dramatic construction, we cannot acknowledge Mr. Bulwer a proficient in the art. His play is a huddle of improbabilities. The characters and events are without natural unison or coherence, strung together by the mere cobweb of a very light subject. Verily, instead of joining Mr. Bulwer and his yo triumph, we feel rather surprised he does not chant a miserare, while his sins against legitimate drama are under judgment. As a reading play, his work amazes us still more. Even the language has little of his usual brilliancy, not a spark to a page. On the poetic score, we came to his Lady of Léon with very subdued expectations after his La Vallière. But even the prose of his new piece wants altogether his distinguishing smartness and the spangled richness of his diction elsewhere. Our solution of the phenomenon would be that Mr. Bulwer is out of his depth in the drama. Its immense requisitions swallow up his powers and leave him upon the surface. Feebleness itself. A pleasure boat cannot stem its way over Atlantic ridges. A goldfish cannot sport in those tremendous seas which the Leviathan spurts through his nostrils. If there be no such defect of dramatic force about our author, let us ask, where is the Cromwell announced and reviewed in the Westminster long since? Had not this subject been a nobler bait for his dramatic ambition, offered a field more fertile of reward to his dramatic husbandry, a wider scope on which to exhibit his dramatic power of construction than a maudlin French romance? But the same wisdom which taught Mr. Bulwer to decline our challenge once before will, no doubt, continue his mentor. It is far more safe to pick a posy garland at the roots of Parnassus than pluck a wreath of dark evergreen on the pinnacle. What are called by an understood misnomer, melodramas, or slight tackings together of scenes for theatrical effect, will remain, we opine, the most suitable, acceptable, and attainable drama in the present day. Nor, if Mr. Bulwer devote himself to such productions, do we despair of seeing an English scribe bring them into repute. It is better, by a whole leaf of laurel, to be a scribe than the nearest thing Great Britain has to him, an illegitimate dramatizer. I, one thing that I love, as well as the point of comparison, like no, the point of similarity between these two reviews of comparing them to other writers, they're both like, I guess he's talented, but this work really does not do it. Yeah. I mean, this is full of backhanded insults, like um, <laughs> stick to things you can be good at, you know, like this kind of... Um, patronizing stick to melodrama that's that's what you can accomplish without embarrassing yourself buddy <laughs> and i like that the like the review that i read which was primarily about Devereux, but there were other like works thrown in there is like this may have been able to work in drama but it doesn't work in prose and yours is like this may work in prose but it does not work in drama mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. so it's just not doing it for anyone and i would be lying if i said i wasn't kind of glad yeah <laughs> this is lit slashing where uh we're reminded that reviews are definitely not written for their authors <laughs> it's much more fun to read it generally much more fun if you don't like the author um but yeah much more fun to read it with a bit of distance yes um you can find us on twitter at lit slashing pod if you want to find out more about especially the victorian authors that we might 
mention, listen to Victorian Scribblers, if you want to, and I can say this without it being weird, if you want to listen to some actually good fiction, listen to Courtney's other podcast, The Way We Haunt Now. The, I think the second season is coming out soon. Um, right? Well, it's in production right now. It's coming it's out in, in December. <laughs> if you want to listen to or engage with some fiction, that gets a very good review from me and I think a lot of other people. Yeah, listen to that. Ah. If you are looking for more fiction about reviews specifically, I can highly recommend The One Stars, a podcast about one-star reviews written and received across the multiverse. Uh, I'm not being paid to promote this. I just love it. (laughs) So, these sisters. Emily Jane Bronte was born 30th July 1818 and died on the 19th of December 1848. Anne Bronte was born 17th January 1820 to 28th May 1849. They published their first novel together as Wuthering Heights and Agnes Grey under the pseudonyms Ellis Bell and Acton Bell. Yeah, you you might know these authors. Um, And we figured, why do one Bronte when you can cover two at the same time? (laughs) Feed two Brontes with one scone. I don't know. I didn't want to go the other metaphor of that. (laughs) two brontes with one particle of tuberculosis that's too dark sorry i apologize for myself oh too soon it'll never not be too soon so uh yeah we have some reviews to share a review of wuthering heights and agnes gray by emily bronte and anne bronte respectively published in the Athenaeum in 1847. Jane Eyre, it will be recollected, was edited by Mr. Currer Bell. Here are two tales so nearly related to Jane Eyre in cast of thought, incident, and language as to excite some curiosity. All three might be the work of one hand, but the first issued remains the best. In spite of much power and cleverness, In spite of its truth to life in the remote nooks and corners of England, Wuthering Heights is a disagreeable story. The bells seem to affect painful and exceptional subjects. The misdeeds and oppressions of tyranny, the eccentricities of woman's fantasy. They do not turn away from dwelling upon those physical acts of cruelty which we know to have their warrant in the real annals of crime and suffering, but the contemplation of which true taste rejects. The brutal master of the lonely house on Wuthering Heights, a prison which might be pictured from life, has doubtless had his prototype in those ungenial and remote districts where human beings, like trees, grow gnarled and dwarfed and distorted by the inclement climate. But he might have been indicated with far fewer touches, in place of so entirely filling the canvas that there is hardly a scene untainted by his presence." It was like a dreariness. A like unfortunate selection of objects, which cut short the popularity of Charlotte Smith's novels, rich though they be in true pathos and faithful descriptions of nature. Enough of what is mean and bitterly painful and degrading gathers round every one of us during the course of his pilgrimage through this veil of tears to absolve the artist from choosing his incidents and characters out of such a dismal catalogue, and if the bells, singly or collectively, 
are contemplating future or frequent utterances in fiction, let us hope that they will spare us further interiors so gloomy as the one here elaborated with such dismal minuteness. In this respect, Agnes Grey is more acceptable to us, though less powerful. It is the tale of a governess who undergoes much that is the real bond of a governess's endurance. But the new victim's trials are of a more ignoble quality than those which awaited Jane Eyre. In the household of the Bloomfields, the governess is subjected to torment by terrible children, as the French have it. In that of the Murrays, she has to witness the ruin wrought by false indulgence on two coquettish girls, whose coquetries jeopardize her own heart's secret. In both these tales, there is so much feeling for character and nice marking of scenery that we cannot leave them without once again warning their authors against what is eccentric and unpleasant. Never was there a period in our history of society when we English could so ill afford to dispense with sunshine. Like, how dare? How dare you roll up to these queens of, like, a gothic literature and tell them that the very thing for which they're most remembered is also, like, the thing they should never do again? The audacity! Also, like, you're reviewing gothic novels. I don't, like, go to a pizza place and then review it and say, this isn't fish and chips. Right? It doesn't make any sense. There's too much pizza in the world. And it's well-cooked pizza, but there's too much pizza in the world. <laughs> uh, yeah. Also, like, the frequent kind of manifestation of Jane Eyre here. It's like, mm -hmm. the amount of sibling rivalry this must have caused. Just, ah. I can only imagine. I have, in my usual, slightly off-the-wall way, not actually, well, I kind of have a review of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. But I have a review of reviews of the tenant of Wildfell Hall. Yes. This article is called New Novels, Critics. The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Acton Bell is like his preceding work of the Jane Eyre family, and the writer, we believe, is of the same family as the author of that very popular performance. By the by, with regard to these family resemblances, we may as well depart from the sheer unsatisfactoriness of criticism upon works of fiction by noticing the whimsicalities and blunders into which the best of us may sometimes fall, a circumstance which ought to be teach leniency towards error in others. Prefix to Wildfell Hall are quoted the opinions of the press on Mr. Bell's first novel, and they curiously agree about its relation, affinity, etc. to Jane Eyre, Mr. Currabell's production, not Acton's. It seems almost a ring of bells and the changes not very marked. The Britannia says, it is strangely original, it reminds us of Jane Eyre. But Douglas Gerald beats this to ribbons, for he recommends all his readers who love novelty to get this story, for we, Douglas Gerald, can promise them they never read anything like it before. It is like Jane Eyre. So that this one thing is clear. Mr. Gerald's readers never had read Jane Eyre, or they must have read something like it before. The Atlas is characteristically quoted in the same of ease, for its opinion, viz, it is a colossal performance. There's a little bit more discussion of other reviews, and then we find... But what have these unreal realities to do with new novels? Literally nothing. And they seem to us to be suggested simply by the fact there is so little to be critically said of such publications. They are to amuse the hour and to waste an hour in telling how they can or cannot do so is not only to spoil that time, but to prevent the pleasure of the original. Well then, with regard to Wildfell Hall, it really deserves the praise bestowed on its precursor as a work of talent. The talent is certainly more displayed in the conception and descriptions and incidents of the first volume than when the author gets involved in the intricacies of his own story. 
and the interest lags much in making out the denouement. After the tenants is confessed, we care little about her, and see to the end, through all her dutiful perfections, not forgetting the rather dubious moral of a pseudo-widow forming a devoted attachment to another man while her profligate husband is still living. To be sure, that is all very virtuous, very restrained, and very guarded. It is a great fact, and under any other painting of circumstances would be a dangerous model for the best of disgusted wives to imitate. It's original! It's like Jade Eyre! It's original! It's like Jade Eyre! It's like comparing Mary Poppins to the turn of the screw. I don't know. <laughs> I was coming up with that while I was listening. It took me a bit. <laughs> that was such a good comparison. But yeah, I just loved this summary of clearly someone who's really bored of reading other reviews going, you cannot keep comparing everything to Jane Eyre. Yeah, we'll have to do an episode on Jane Eyre specifically because it got a lot of it got a lot of interesting reviews too. But I also want to do like one mm-hmm. where Charlotte, who outlived both of her sisters, um, becomes kind of the editor um, of their work, the keeper of their work, and has some thoughts about the quality of it that she <laughs> kind of infamously notes. Um, yeah. <laughs> I also thought this review was so kind of ambivalent, where it's like, yeah, she's talented, but I don't like the story. It's really similar to the review that you read. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why do you why do you pick up a book in a genre that you don't like and then give it a negative review because you don't like it? Like, jeez. <laughs> jeez. We never see that happen today. What is with these people? Anyway, if you think we're original and like Jane Eyre, then please leave us a positive review via your favourite podcatcher. Yeah, if you've never heard anything like this, but maybe it's like Victorian Scribblers, leave a review. (laughs) William Wilkie Collins was born on January 8th, 1824, and died on the 23rd of September, 1889. He was an English novelist and playwright known for The Woman in White and The Moonstone, and the latter has been called the first modern English detective novel. Okay, for this episode, I've chosen a selection of items from The American Socialist Devoted to the Enlargement and Perfection of Home concerning Wilkie Collins's book, Fallen Leaves. The first of these notes was published on January 16th, 1879, under the banner of Socialistic Notes. Wilkie Collins, in his novel, The Fallen Leaves, now passing through the numbers of Frank Leslie's Illustrated Weekly, introduces as one of his characters Claude Amelius Goldenheart, a young man of 21 years who claims to be a member of the Primitive Christian Socialists at Tadmore Community, State of Illinois, and on his way with the approval of the community to London to see life. We shall read with interest all that Mr Collins has to say about the community of Primitive Christian Socialists. We thus far have only the mirror's glimpse, and that tells us that at the community everybody is taught to be courteous to everybody, the finical French names are not there in favour, that the communists have unlimited confidence in their system of education, and that they hate Kant. Not a bad beginning, Mr Collins! So there's a full-length article that they uh, follow this up with. And then on the 6th of February, we get this second socialistic note included. Wookie Collins's new novel, The Fallen Leaves, grows less socialistic as it progresses. Short and sweet. So I was looking for actual reviews of Collins's work, but I came across this and couldn't, couldn't resist it. I like that. <laughs> it becomes less socialistic as it progresses. Yeah, there is, there's a full-length review that precedes this, which goes into why it becomes less socialist Mm. yeah they had such great expectations for him and then they were completely dashed 
Wilkie Collins disappointing the socialists since 1824. <laughs> and it's really funny because there are reviews of this same novel in other um, publications that are clearly much less socialist that really take issue with the fact that it is at least a little bit socialist. So since 1869, it's been really difficult to get the... Uh, since 1879, rather. There's been that issue of not being socialist enough for some and being too socialist for the mainstream. Isn't that just the way? <laughs> it is the way. This is Lit Slashing Pod, where um, you might not ever be socialist enough, but you might always be too socialist at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Share the love, the wealth, the love, by leaving us reviews and telling your friends about us on social media. And... Review us with your feelings about Das Kapital, because that's socialist. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Today we're slashing a lesser-known author named Fergus Hume. Fergus Hume, or Ferguson Wright Hume, was a British citizen who grew up in New Zealand and lived for a time in Australia. And he was a wildly prolific author in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He wrote over 140 known novels, a handful of plays, and purportedly a few songs. Despite the sheer amount of work he churned out, Fergus Hume is largely remembered as a one-hit wonder for the novel The Mystery of a Handsome Cab, and, and then largely um, only by murder mystery and crime fans. He was born on July 8th of 1859, and he died on July 12th of 1932. There are so many of his novels that were castigated by reviewers, it's hard to choose just one. Um, but today's review, I think, is a good example of a harsh, but maybe not soul-destroying <laughs> critique. So let's give it a listen and see what you think. A review of Fergus Hume's The Tombstone Treasure published in the Academy Fiction Supplement, 21 August, 1897. If anyone ought to write a good detective story, it should be Mr. Fergus Hume. There are, I know, people who shoot out their lips at the mystery of a hansom cab, but it was a mystery, and that's the point. Mr. Fergus Hume, to be quite frank, has no more style than a bill broker. But the mystery of that murder in the cab held you from start to finish, if you had any of the elementary emotions left in your 19th century soul, because the author knew how to build a plot. Now you may have noticed that many men, so soon as they have discovered that they can do one thing well, instantly set to work on the attempt to do something quite different. Wherefore, Mr. Fergus Hume, having discovered that he can write a story which will float a publishing company on its plot, insists upon writing stories which would sink a syndicate in its style. I know that the man who shouts encore is both ungrammatical and unfair, and that the man who writes one good story is not necessarily capable of writing another equally good and entirely different. But if Mr. Fergus Hume will sit down quietly and dovetail another plot as complicated and mysterious as the handsome cab murder, and make a book of it... I will buy the book and not worry about discount. You know when you're listening to a review and you kind of feel like the reviewer is so pleased with their own turn of phrase that they're being a bit more verbose than they need to be? Mm -hmm. like, that's the impression I get of this one. Yeah. 
this this author thinks they're pretty clever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, when you write 140 novels over the course of your career, not all of them are going to be shining examples of like literary perfection. But <laughs> you can't expect an author to write the same thing over and over again either. I think he's a little mm, yeah. Yeah. It's good that you liked that one novel, but new ones are going to be a little bit different, and that's not a bad thing. Yeah. But yeah. The main the main impression I got is that a person was like, "This simile is great. Now I have to up it with the next one." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this has been Lit Slashing Pod, your weekly dose of pithily phrased shot and fruit. If you think we have more style than a bill maker's book, please review us on the podcatcher of your choice and tell a friend to tune in. Thomas Hardy was born on the 2nd of June 1840 and died on the 11th of January 1928. He was an English author who was influenced by the realist style of George Eliot and the romantic tradition of William Wordsworth. His novels, set in the fictional county of Wessex, were critical of English society. He is best known for novels including Tess of the D'Urbervilles and Jude the Obscure. And today I have reviews of exactly those two novels. Confusingly, both of these are titled almost the same. The first is Thomas Hardy's latest novel in 1892, and the second is Mr. Thomas Hardy's latest novel. I, I guess it explains what's going on. But... Where is the writing of fiction going to? More and more, the impulse of genius seems to be away from the contemplation of wholesome, invigorating scenes and towards noisome ones. The two most important works of fiction recently published most important in point of literary finish and in the power of imagination, the two which will be most read perhaps and most talked of for some time to come. The history of David Grieve and Tess of the D'Urbervilles are striking examples of this trend. It is not for us to shut away from the artist the presentation of the dark strains in life and character. Fiction would be one-sided and in the main valueless were it confined to picturing only happy, wholesome folk. Nature is composite, so must art be and it is unfair to life to represent it wholly evil as to represent it wholly good. This is true even when we discard every ethical consideration and view art merely as an agent for producing pictures. What is this fascination which is drawing novelists to adultery as the one most desirable subject? Does the study of human life inevitably lead to regarding illicit intercourse between the sexes as the largest, most important and most interesting fact affecting society? Is everything connected with our advanced state of civilization dominated by the questions arising out of the unholy love between man and woman? Shall we quit religion, philosophy, politics, commerce, everything, and turn to a study of adultery? These are blunt inquiries, but they are pertinent to the issue presented by a novel like Tess of the D'Urbervilles. As a piece of artisanship, this novel is well-nigh perfect. The workman has shown himself a consummate master of his craft. A sense of this superb workmanship is the only pure pleasure the book affords, and every other effect is as black as night, as cheerless as a tomb, as hopeless as the scaffold. Wow. Let me just go get my pearls so I can clutch them. <laughs> I like the uh, implication in the fact that they repeatedly say between the sexes and between men and women mm -hmm. that um, you can write about gay adultery all you want, that's fine. <laughs> that's what I'm taking from that. <laughs> This is your, uh, this is your mission. <laughs> Should you choose to accept it? So we follow that up four years later with a review of Jude the Obscure. 
those who have satisfied themselves by observation and experience of the essentially artificial character of so-called British morality will not be surprised to find that certain critics of the didactic school have condemned Mr. Thomas Hardy's latest novel, Jude the Obscure, on the ground of its outspokenness and its flagrant disregard of Mrs. Grundy's tender feelings. Tess of the Devils offended the susceptibilities of such critics as Mr. Andrew Lang and Mr. James Payne, who worship the venerable Walter Scott and prefer romance to realism. But Jude the Obscure will be anathema moranatha to hundreds of comparatively liberal-minded people who see no harm in such works as Jane Eyre or Adam Bede. Mr. Hardy does not write, like Sir Walter Besant, merely for the edification of the young person. The tragic chapter with which the novel closes is perhaps the finest specimen of pure narrative that Mr. Hardy has ever given us. There is nothing equal to it in Tess of the Durbervilles. The character of Sue is nearly as fascinating as that of Elfrida in a pair of blue eyes. In concentrated power, the novel as a whole is inferior to Tess, and it lacks the fresh, sweet atmosphere which makes The Woodlanders one of the most delightful of books. In Arabella, we have a faithful portrait of a foul-minded woman whom we can compare to no other female personage in Mr. Hardy's novels. Some of the language put into the mouth of Philotson, the husband of Sue, is a little incongruous, for it's scarcely likely that a village schoolmaster would talk about the matriarchal system. But in spite of certain defects of form, which are perhaps inevitable, having regard to the intricacies of a story involving matrimonial complications, Jude the Obscure is the best English novel which has appeared since Tess of the Durbervilles. Mr. George Meredith's epigrammatic cleverness cannot atone for his poverty of invention, his lack of incident, his fantastic system of misreading human nature, and if the word novelist means a writer of human history, Mr. Hardy is incomparably superior to his supposed rival. I would class the author of Tess with Fielding, Balzac, Flaubert, Turgenev, George Eliot, Dostoevsky. While Mr. Meredith is the literary brother of Bulwer-Lytton, Peacock and Merrimay, the mosquito-like criticism of the day need not trouble a novelist who has already won fame. He is the greatest living English writer of fiction, in intensity and grip of life, and above all, in the artistic combination of the real and the ideal. He surpasses any of his French contemporaries. Jude the Obscure is not his greatest work, but no other living novelist could have written it. Whoa. Hey, I'm just want to slow clap for you fitting in a bowler lit and <laughs> shot. Well, <laughs> you took a page from that uh, that reviewer a little bit, didn't you? I was kind of like this mentions bowler lit in a negative way, so I'm going to include it. <laughs> and George Eliot in a positive, so I'm like they're they're the two things that can really interest me in something. Yeah, but but that's like a roller coaster of a review. It's like Jude the Obscure is anathema, but also Thomas Hardy is the best novelist of our time so i mean so i think what they're saying at the start is they're like this is a good novel but the kind of prudes that we saw with the test of the d'urbervilles review are gonna really lose their minds over this yeah because jude the obscure is like as well as being kind of experimental in some of its forms is like i think if people have issue with tess then they are gonna have issue with arabella mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. big time mainly i really liked how the last paragraph was just here is everyone who is not as good as Thomas Hardy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this uh, this review took a turn. Um, even though we might not be as good as Thomas Hardy, we hope you'll leave us positive reviews wherever you get your podcasts and share with your friends. And this week, we're going to be looking at reviews of Frances Milton Trollope. She was an English author and writer of travel fiction, and is best known as the author of Domestic Manners of the Americans. If you want to learn more about Francis Milton Trollope, listen to episode 7 and 8 of Victorian Scribblers. So I do indeed have 
a review of Domestic Manners of the Americans today. This is from the American Quarterly Review in 1832, and it gets off to a great start. It says, It is not our purpose to review this book with any desire to expose or correct a single misrepresentation. We have no wish, and certainly see no particular necessity, to set Mrs. Trollope right in any of her misstatements. Her mistakes are numerous, but rather, we are disposed to think, the fault of her education, which appears to have been somewhat French and flippant, and by no means calculated for a comprehensive survey of her kind or kin, and not the result of any inclination on the part of the lady. She is particularly careful, indeed, at frequent intervals of her book, to induce us to attribute her errors, though she does not believe that she has made any, to the simple and single defect of vision, mental or physical, and is assiduously urgent in discarding from her speech, in the hearing of her auditors at least, all of those prejudices and preferences, either of birth or education, which she appears to be conscious have sometimes the effect of giving colour to all objects of human speculation, whether abroad or at home. With these reservations clearly made, and as clearly recognised and understood, we will venture to look into the volume, which, if it has not to employ the language of the writer in reference to the reception among us of Basil Hall's book on the same subject, been productive of a moral earthquake, has nevertheless, to the infinite amusement of the well-informed in our country, occasioned some annoyance to many of that thin-skinned gentry, the journalists. She appears evidently to have been a very inquisitive body, and her book is much swollen by a petty and peevish complaining of repelling corners here and uncourteous indifference there, in cases where, without undergoing the usual and in America the necessary forms of introduction, she has instituted a rigorous inquiry into concerns and customs commonly held private and domestic. The notes on slavery are full of errors and scarcely deserve a mention. The details are many of them false. The lady knows nothing of the subject as it obtains and is regulated in the United States, and her speculations upon it are only the commonplace of the philanthropists, such as we have been accustomed to hear in all ages. But that the topic is an irksome and ungracious one in many sections of our country, we should be pleased to give it a place, were it only to afford our readers a fair specimen of the numerous and gross absurdities into which a superficial and flippant writer is so likely to fall, in the discussion of institutions which lie so far below the surface as ours, which may not be seen, and can only be judged of and known by those who feel them. The adroit manner in which the lady, while stating what seems to be good or praiseworthy in our country or its institutions, contrives to mingle with it some alloy or make the whole tell against us, is worthy of attention. While we would not always consider her obnoxious to the charge of the suggestio falsi, that of the suppressio veri may not be so readily passed with impunity. An offence attributable not so much, we should say in charity, to the desire of misrepresentation as to an unqualified ignorance of the subject. This deficiency seems to bring no misgivings to her mind. Indeed, the desperate desire to prate on all topics so peculiar to her has not suffered her to perceive or regard it, and will scarcely permit her American reader to set down to the right score or justify her on any. The following passages should surely bring us large accessions of emigrants, since the evils of our country, as detailed in the text, are those not of its resources or its institutions, but rather of the simple or stick-neft people who cannot comprehend and do not know how to appreciate its advantages. And I also have kind of a response to the other reviews of this work. This is from the Philadelphia Album and Ladies Literary Portfolio for 1832, and it is entitled Mrs. Trollope's Book. The American edition of Domestic Manners of the Americans by Mrs. Trollope, complete in one volume, has just been received in this city, as issued from the press of the Harpers. It is for sale by Mrs. Mensonson and by most of the Philadelphia booksellers. The book is highly interesting and by no means uninstructive. Many of his pictures are caricatures, some of them, however, are given in bold colours and are true to the life. 
no correct and unprejudiced view of this publication has yet been spread before the American people. The few bigoted and ultra-notices of it that we have seen in the newspapers are for the most part unfair, and far more illiberal in their spirit than Mrs Trollope's book itself. The only proper notice we have seen of the publication was made by a correspondent of the commercial advertisers, a part of whose article we quote. One cannot but regret that our sensitiveness to the opinion of foreigners should have become so excessive that what is but fair and in truth wholesome criticism should affect us almost in the same degree as the grossest falsehood and injustice. This feeling, however, much to be lamented, is a natural one and easily accounted for. It is a morbid sensibility which has been generated by the aspersions of English tourists, the more deliberate and wanton slanderers of English reviewers, the grasping, exclusive, encroaching and intermeddling policy of the British statesmen, and the intolerable rudeness and conceit of some of those ignorant and ill-bred people who come here to turn a penny and go home. So I thought it was interesting to kind of contrast a review that was really going on about how, how much she sucks, essentially, and how rude it is of her to write about how slavery is bad. And another one that's like, yeah, people really got in their feelings about this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... I don't, so, like, the thing that stood out to me about the first one, besides the sort of just, like, reactionariness of it, it seemed like what they were saying was that she was poorly educated and trying her best to be unbiased. Like... Yeah. And that that was bad somehow. <laughs> so there are a few others that I've read and they're just, they're just really defensive, like the second review says. There's another one where she talks about the, um, in Domestic Manners, she talks about how in Cincinnati, their version of taking the garbage out is you throw it into the middle of the street and pigs come and eat it. <gasps> and she is, understandably, I think, quite confused by this when she first sees it. And then this review takes up that and goes, yeah, well, Manchester's full of illness and disease, isn't it? So you can't really talk about Cincinnati. And it's like, first of all, she's from Bristol. So Manchester is a bit irrelevant. And also, she very much does also write about how conditions in Manchester aren't great in Michael Armstrong. So I think the, yeah, the, the general tone of reviews of domestic manners of Americans, mm. other than the second one I read, are just super defensive. I, yeah, I like that you included that second one just to give some perspective. I was really heartened to see that, that someone was sticking up for her. Yeah. Shout out to the Philadelphia ladies. Speaking of reviews of reviews, if you like what you're hearing, you can leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And today we are going to be talking about Anthony Trollope. And if you'll excuse me, a very flippant biography. Anthony Trollope was an English postal worker who also wrote some novels, I guess. He should be best known for being extremely rude about his mother in his autobiography. I'm just like poetry snapping at you. Yes. <laughs> so I thought rather than looking at reviews of any of his novels as a point of similarity with his mother, I have a review of North America by Anthony Trollope. This comes from <laughs> the Continental Monthly in 1862. And a note beforehand for anyone who might want to look up this review, talks at length about Anthony's discussions of enslaved people and black people in the United States, which is frankly pretty racist. This review is calling him out on that, and I've trimmed it to exclude really egregious references. But if you're going to look it up, it just contains some upsetting bits. 
It is not likely that Mr Trollope's advent in the country would have given rise to any remark or excitement, his novels, clever though they be, not having taken hold of the people's heart as did those of Dickens. He came among us quietly, the newspapers gave him no flourish of trumpets, he travelled about unknown. Hence it was that few knew a new book was to be written upon America by one bearing a name not overpopular 30 years ago. Curiosity was combined to the friends and acquaintances of Mr Trollope, who were naturally not a little anxious that he should conscientiously write such a book as would remove the existing prejudice to the name of Trollope and render him personally as popular as his novels. Mr Trollope treats of our civil war at great length. In fact, the reverberations of himself on this matter are quite as objectionable as those in the Trent Affair. But it is his treatment of this subject that must ever be a source of regret to the earnest thinkers who are gradually becoming the masters of our government's policy, who constitute the bone and muscle of the land, the rank and file of the army, and who are changing the original character of the war into that of a holy crusade. It is to be deplored, because Mr Trollope's book will no doubt influence English opinion to a certain extent and therefore militate against us, and we already know how his mistaken opinions have been seized upon by pro-slavery journals in this country as a bonne bouche which they rarely obtain from so respectable a source, more palatable to them, coming from that nationality which we have always been taught to believe was more abolition in its creed than William Lloyd Garrison himself, and from whose people we have received most of our lectures on the sin of slavery. Our first ground of complaint against Mr Trollope's North America is its extreme verbosity. Had it been condensed to one half or at least one third of its present size, the spirit of the book had been less weakened and the taste of the public better satisfied. The question naturally arises in an inquiring mind, if the author could make so much out of a six-month tour through the northern states, what would the consequences have been had he remained a year and visited Dixie's land as well? The conclusions logically arrived at are, to say the least, very unfavourable to weak-eyed persons who are condemned to read the cheap American edition. Life is too short and books are too numerous to allow of repetition. Now for some more talk about the question of slavery in the book. It is sad that so fine a nature as that of Mr Trollope should not feel conscience-stricken in believing that, quote, to mix up the question of general abolition with this war must be the work of a man too ignorant to understand the real subject of the war or too false to his country to regard it, end quote. Yet it is strange that these two ignorant or two false men are the very ones that Mr Trollope holds up to admiration and declares that any nation might be proud to claim their genius. Longfellow and Lowell, Everson and Motley, to whom we could add almost all the well-known thinkers of this country, men after his own heart in most things, belong to this ignorant or false sect. Is it their one madness? Mr Trollope claims to be an anti-slavery man, but we must confess that our way of arguing the ground he stands upon in this matter is anything but terra firma. And this is just after a quote from Anthony Trollope, which says some frankly disgusting stuff about how none of the four million enslaved people in southern states have any capacity for self-maintenance or self-control. Um, that's a direct quote from him. He confesses that without these four million enslaved people, the South would be a wilderness. Therefore, they do work to the music of the enslaver's whip. How very odd that the moment men and women, for Mr Trollope does acknowledge them to be such, own themselves and are paid for the sweat of their brow, they should forget the trades by which they have enriched the South and become incapable of maintaining themselves, they who have maintained 350,000 insolent enslavers. We have the firmest faith in Mr Trollope's honesty. We know he has written nothing that he does not conscientiously believe, and he has given unmistakable evidence of his goodwill to the country. We are lost in amazement when he tells us, I know I shall never again be at Boston. We should be thin-skinned indeed did we take umbrage at a book written in the spirit of Mr Trollope's, 
On the contrary, the Americans who are interested in it are agreeably disappointed in the verdict which he has given of them. And though they may not accept his political opinions, they are sensible enough to appreciate the right of each man to his honest convictions. Mr Trollope, though he sees in our future not two but three confederacies, predicts a great destiny for the North. We can see but a union of all, a union cemented by the triumph of freedom in the abolition of that which has been the taint upon the nation. If Mr Trollope's prophecies are fulfilled, and God forbid, it will be because we have allowed the golden hour to escape. Pleased as we are with Mr Trollope the writer, who has not failed to appreciate the self-sacrifice of northern patriotism, Mr Trollope the man has a far greater hold upon our heart, a hold which has been strengthened rather than weakened by his book. The friends of Mr Trollope extend to him their cordial greeting, and Boston in particular will offer a hearty handshake of a hand to the writer of North America whenever he chooses to take that hand again. I found that ending really weird after the content of the review, to be honest. It is, yeah. Yeah, I kind of, the reviewer kind of flip-flopped there. Because, like, basically, you know, to sum up that review in three words, it's verbose and ignorant, right? (laughs) And racist. Yeah, they are, like, I extremely edited it down to not include things that would be frankly upsetting. Mm. But they're ripping into him the whole way through. Well, he criticises people who say the Brits should have sympathy with the North and with enslaved people trying to get their freedom because, quote, they have power and therefore we can't have sympathy with them. And the reporter is like, what are you talking about? It's like, that's not how anything works. That's, that's completely wild. Jeez. Yeah. It's a weirdly measured ending for a review that the whole way through has been like, Mm-hmm. I don't know why he's saying this and rightly standing up for enslaved people being like, what is he talking about? I did like what it said. Why would they forget the trades that they've been propping up the South with as soon as they become free? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I just wonder if it's like the editor reads this and he's like, I have one note. <laughs> yeah, You need to be nicer that, at the end. <laughs> that's my impression. And also that it's only just under 100 years into the history of America and they're like, maybe we should be a little bit nicer. But it does seem like they were told at the end that they had to pretend to be really gracious. But they do still say, we hope what he thinks happens will not happen. Mm. Mm -hmm. The impression I get is they're like, we have to be the bigger person. We have to be like, no, you will be welcome in Boston. But also, you're talking about a rubbish man. Yeah. (laughs) Like, write about stuff you know, dude. (laughs) Take a page from Jane Austen, apparently. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But the reason I picked this, which is really interesting, is um, I don't know if this is coming out before or after the one on Francis Trollope, but mm. all the reviews up for her are like, she keeps talking about slavery and how it's bad and we don't like that. And then this is, mm-hmm. she keeps talking about slavery and how it's good and we don't like that. It's a really interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, that's fascinating. If you want to tell us about why Entity Trollope is trash, we are here for it. <laughs> you can also leave a review uh, anywhere you get your podcasts. And this week, we are going to be slashing Charles Dickens. Woo! (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, it's it's all good. Um, Yeah, probably the most famous author of the 19th century. I don't know what else to say about him, really. Mm -hmm. He's he's Dickens. If you haven't heard of him, (laughs) I'm not sure why you're listening to this. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like I should give a disclaimer in that I do talk a lot of rubbish about Dickens, but I do genuinely really love his work. And the book that I found a review of today is definitely solidly in my top three favourite books. It's actually the first Victorian novel I ever read. So mm. I have a lot of love for it. 
So this is a review of Our Mutual Friend from the London Review in 1865. Worthwhile to notice that this is towards the end of his career. The energy of youth yet remains, but it is united with the deeper insight of maturer years. Not that we mean to say Mr Dickens has outgrown his faults. They are as obvious as ever, sometimes even trying our patience rather hard. A certain extravagance in particular scenes and persons, a tendency to caricature and grotesqueness, and a something here and there which savours of the melodramatic, as if the author had been considering how the thing would tell on the stage are to be found in Our Mutual Friend, as in all this great novelist's productions. The tender rind wherein they were cut in youth has become hard bark long since, and the incisions are fixed forever. To rail at them is simple waste of time, besides implying a great deal of ingratitude on the part of the railer. We shall therefore make but brief allusion here to the characters of Wegg and Venus, who appear to us in the highest degree unnatural, the one being a mere phantasm and the other a non-entity, and shall pass on to a consideration of the more solid parts of the book, in which Mr Dickens's old mastery over human nature is once more made splendidly apparent. The book teems with characters and throbs with action, but it may perhaps be objected that there is a want of some one conspicuous figure dominating over the rest and affording a fixed centre to all this moving wealth of life. John Rokesmith must, we suppose, be regarded as the hero, but he is certainly not the chief character, nor the most interesting. Though in many respects well drawn, he does not greatly enlist our sympathies, perhaps because his motives of action are strange and improbable. Indeed, the whole story of old Harmon's bequest and what arises out of it strikes us as being faulty. This, we are aware, is to proclaim a serious defect in the novel, as such, since we have here the basis of the whole fiction. We must confess that in reading Our Mutual Friend from month to month, we cared very little as to what became of old Harmon's property, excepting in as far as the ultimate disposal of that sordid aggregation of wealth affected the development of two or three of the chief characters. The final explanation is a disappointment. The whole plot in which the deceased Harmon, Boffin, Wegg and John Rokesmith are concerned is wild and fantastic, wanting in reality and leading to a degree of confusion which is not compensated by any additional interest in the story. That the son John Harmon, known through the greater part of the book as John Rokesmith, should come back to England under the circumstances related, should disappear as related, should live for months at the house of his childhood's friends, the Boffins, without being discovered, and should then be suddenly found out without any sufficient explanation, that Mr Boffin should get entangled with a man like Wegg, that granting the entanglement Wegg, with all his cunning, should make his calculations with such transparent stupidity taking no account of the Dutch bottle which he has seen dug up by Boffin from the dust heap, and which contains, as the reader all along foresees, the later will which nullifies the will relied on by Wegg for forcing Boffin to give up half his property. That the coarse and insolent treatment of Rokesmith by Boffin, and the growing miserliness of the latter, maintained at all times and before all people, should be a mere trick concocted between the two, to turn the regards of proud little Bella Wilfer towards John, and to cure the young lady of her sordid aspirations, and that all this, when the right moment arrives, should be verbally set forth, as in those explanations which we find at the end of plays, when the characters range themselves before the footlights, make their confessions, and unravel the imbroglio. These are features in Mr Dickens's story which we cannot but regard as in the highest degree improbable, and as detracting from the merit of the book as a whole. 
The explanation given towards the close of the miserly ways and speeches of Mr Boffin is particularly unsatisfactory, for it has the effect of making what would otherwise have been a very masterly development of character comparatively poor, forced and artificial. The termination of Mr Dickens's novels is often hurried, and such is the case in the present instance. The complication of events does not work itself clear by a slow and natural process, but is, so to speak, roughly torn open. And even before we are halfway through the book, the mystery concerning John Rokesmith is explained in an equally objectionable manner. Young Rokesmith, or Harmon, tells himself his own previous history in a sort of mental soliloquy, and they helpfully give a note here to say, in which a long series of events is minutely narrated, evidently for no other purpose than to inform the reader. It is surprising that so experienced a romance writer as Mr Dickens could not have designed some more artful means of revealing that portion of his design. So this person has a lot of I mean, it sounds like they're like me. Like, they really enjoy Dickens's fiction, but every so often they're like, hang on, you can't just get away with this because you're Dickens. Right, yeah. I, I kind of liked the way they were dancing around, like, calling him old and set in his ways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, which, like, he has a very, very clear style. It's kind of like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, actors who are kind of typecast, right? Like, he's, you know, it, you always know if you're reading a Dickens novel. So I think that's fair to say, but also very amusing. <laughs> and also it's kind of like, if it works, if it sells books, then why would he change it? Right, yeah. Yeah. But I do agree with them where they're like, he's more skilled than just having John Rokesmith tell his own story to himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of out of the blue. <laughs> I mean, I get what they're saying, but also, I think at this point in his career, he'd kind of earned the right to be a bit formulaic. Yeah. And do some slightly weird things. Yeah, but like... A big expository dump, I don't think he gets a pass on that bit. I think that's the most fair piece of this whole review. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, I find it really interesting that that is one of the main criticisms of Bill Willitton. It's the same kind of expository, someone somehow knowing something that hadn't happened to them, which obviously isn't what's happening, he- happening here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, I think it's like a certain... Not really necessarily a school, but like maybe a cohort of mm. novelists who, yeah, like that was that was the thing. But then like the market and sort of genre expectations outpace their thing, but they still like have a brand so they can still keep cashing in on it, even though it's lazy writing. <laughs> I don't know. I think the other thing that comes out here is that Dickens, obviously, if anyone doesn't know, one thing that he really enjoyed was doing speaking tours. He's famous for this, um, mm-hmm. going out and performing the death of Nancy for people. Yeah. He loved yeah. theatre. And I think they they really pick up on, up on something that they're like, yeah, he seems to want to be writing a play, but he's writing a novel. Mm-hmm. But still, the yeah, the expository don't, wouldn't work very well in a play anyway. So, eh. yeah. Yeah. If you would like to leave an expository <laughs> dump in our reviews, please go ahead and do so. We hope it's a positive one. <laughs> And this week, we are taking a look at some brutal reviews of Henry David Thoreau's On Walden Pond. Yeah, so you might have heard of Thoreau. He is uh, kind of infamous. And um, as a transcendentalist, as like a as a 19th century American intellectual, as uh, somebody who's like a champion of naturalist things, also somebody who like has bigger claims than... <laughs> what he's actually doing like i don't know we'll link to some 
juicy Twitter threads in the show notes. But um, so disclaimer, like I really love Thoreau's work, but he's also just like really fun to uh, see slashed, I guess, you know, like. Yeah. So today I have two reviews of Walden. The first was published in the Boston Daily Journal on the 10th of August, 1854. This is a remarkable book. The thread of the work is a narrative of the personal experience of the eccentric author as a hermit on the shores of Walden Pond. The body consists of his reflections on life and its pursuits. Mr. Thoreau carried out his ideas of communism by building with his own hands an humble hut, cultivating his own garden patch, earning with the sweat of his brow enough of coarse food to sustain life, and living independent of the world and of its circumstances. He continued this selfish existence for two years, and then returned to society. But why, he does not inform his readers. Whether satisfied that he had mistaken the pleasures of solitude, or whether the self-improvement which the world has charitably supposed was the object of his retirement had been accomplished, it is certain that he was relieved of none of his selfish opinions, that he left behind in the woods of Concord none of his misanthropy, and that he brought back habits of thought which, though profound, are erratic and often border on the transcendental. The narrative of the two years' hermit life of such a man can hardly fail to be attractive, and the study of the workings of a mind so constituted must possess a peculiar interest. But the attraction is without sympathy. The interest is devoid of admiration. The outré opinions of a mind like that of Mr. Thoreau, while they will attract attention as the eccentric outburst of real genius, so far from finding a response in the bosom of the reader, will excite a smile, for their very extravagance. And we can easily imagine that if Mr. Thoreau would banish from his mind the idea that man is an oyster, he might become a passable philosopher. Mr. Thoreau has made an attractive book, more attractive than his week on the Concord and Merrimack, but while many will be fascinated by its contents, few will be improved. As the pantheistic doctrines of the author marred the beauty of his former work, so does his selfish philosophy darkly tinge the pages of Walden. And the best that can be said of the work in its probable effects is that while many will be charmed by the descriptive powers of the author and will smile at his extravagant ideas, few will be influenced by his opinions. This is a negative virtue in a book which is likely to be widely circulated, and which might do much mischief if the author could establish a bond of sympathy with the reader. Interesting. I already have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> the second review was published in New York Morning Express on August 24th, 1854. Mr. Thoreau is a young but promising writer. He is a manly thinker. His opinions betray a clear judgment, careful intellectual cultivation, and a great deal of talent. But the tendencies of his mind are, at times, too speculative. He is too impractical, and although many of the social habits against which he declaims are susceptible of improvement, yet... He takes the privilege of most men with a mission, as the strong-minded philosophers and philosopheresses say, and condemns what cannot well be remedied, or what is so trivial as hardly to be worth the trouble of a chapter of Carlylean rhapsody or epigrammatic abuse. Yet he is indubitably sound in much of what he says, and right in the main. 
His style is crude, but forcible. Its harshness appears to be, in a measure, the result either of carelessness or of affectation. For some of the more elaborate passages a reader meets with in turning over the work display a great mastery of language, much facility in expression that is at once easy and strong, and a happy fancy. When Mr. Thoreau wrote the book, he lived, he says, a mile from any neighbor and alone in the woods in a house, which he had built himself on the shore of Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts. There he lived for two years and two months and supported himself by the labor of his hands only. During the whole of this time, he appears to have been a sort of anchorite. The eccentricity of his mode of life, as he relates it, is laughable, yet it has a moral. Yep. So, so that's uh, that's Thoreau. I have to confess that I've never read any Thoreau. Um, so my part of why I found those reviews so funny is a they are funny reviews, but also I was thinking of Have you seen Dickinson? Not yet. No. Oh, you need to watch it because they have um, basically she goes to visit Thoreau, so she gets, she treks out to his little lodge, and Thoreau is played by John Mulaney, which is always going to be very funny. Hmm. Um, and then halfway through, his mum turns up and get like has been providing him with sandwiches. Yes, <laughs> so, <laughs> and he's just this, which I gather is kind of accurate. Uh huh. Yeah, and it's just this really pompous, very funny character that John Mulaney does really well. Yeah, so like he he like early in the, in Walden, he's like, I went out to the woods because I wished to live deliberately. But like all the while, his mom is bringing him food and doing his laundry. <laughs> And so it's like this really kind of high-flying philosophy that has, like, the other thing that he's famous for saying is, like, basically, I'm paraphrasing kind of badly, like, it's okay to build castles in the air, but you must build foundations under them. But, like, he's doing castles in the air with no foundations. Like, that is his, that is his work. <laughs> or with limited foundations. Yeah, it's, when, it's a really funny, funny scene because it's supposed to be in the middle of nowhere. And you just see this little, like, shack, but then it pans out and there's people about 50 yards away. So yeah. I had that in mind while you were reading. And then I made a few notes. I was really, really struck by um, the charges of him being both selfish and communist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, it sounds like maybe he was selfish, but also going off to live in the woods is not really. Like, self-sufficiency isn't selfish, yeah, I think so. I think maybe like the charges of him being selfish are more like, you know, maybe part of like the response to the civil disobedience or something like that. Like he wants to be off the grid and not contributing to society because he kind of believes society mm. is a load of crap. So like, uh, I think that's probably where it's coming from. But like, yeah, how how are you selfish and communist at the same time? It's fascinating charge. <laughs> I really liked the kind of undertone in both that, like, it's a dangerous book, like, that it's ideas that are plausible enough that it could just, like, radicalize a bunch of people. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My other note was just philosopheresses, like, that's so awkward, yeah. dude, just so philosophers. It, yeah, that word has to go to word jail, or that writer needs to go to word jail. <laughs> and also, we're, compar we're comparing him disfavorably to Carlyle, who notedly not a super chill dude in his personal life yeah <laughs> yeah so there you have it uh 
negative reviews of one of the most beloved works of nonfiction in the United States. <laughs> Leave a review with your favorite John Mulaney bit. <laughs> and check us out on Twitter at lit slashing pod and on our website www.litslashing.card.co. That's card with two R's. Thank you for listening. 